Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 28. Romans 8, verse 28, God's word says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good, to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be firstborn among many brethren. And these he also, these whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. We're again returning tonight to this portion of scripture that's just tremendously encouraging. Um, we are in Romans 8. We've been looking for a long time now at the assurance of our salvation. For those who are in Christ, and we've uh, seen from the top of the chapter that if you're in Christ, there's now therefore no condemnation which is tremendously good news, obviously. We're looking at the work of the Holy Spirit in our life and looking at the unquenchable love of God for us in Christ that guarantees our salvation. And over the past four times together, we have looked at this text. We have clearly identified the certainty, the extent, the recipients, and then the reason for our belief in that divine promise that God does indeed, God, we know that, God does cause all things to work together for good for those who love him. Those are called according to his purpose. Last time we spent the entirety of our time looking at this uh, idea of considering the reason why we're confident in that fact, the promise of God regarding uh, his uh, working all things together for good. We spent our time looking at the eternal purposes of God, the plan of God, who again is working out an eternal plan in time. And, And those plans and purposes have been ordained. They have been determined as we saw last time before time began. Uh, the promises and plans of God are tied up in the eternal promises of God, the eternal love of the triune God and their eternal purposes. We saw last time that uh, whatever God does, he does to bring himself glory and honor uh, because he's God. Uh, Isaiah 42, verse 8, he says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. As I reminded you, the first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. And because God is not an idolater, he doesn't disobey the first command. Therefore, with all of his being and his manifold perfection, God is most passionate about his glory. Therefore, everything that God does in the universe as the sovereign, the, as the creator, as the good and perfect, all-loving God, is done to bring him attention. Everything, everything is done to bring him glory and honor and praise because he alone is worthy to receive it. God himself is the ultimate. God himself is the ultimate. He's the ultimate object of existence. He is the central figure of both time and eternity. Therefore, he has a plan and a purpose that he is working out from eternity in time throughout all of history for our good. Again, all things are working out together for our good, and all things are working out for his glory. That's the plan. That's the purpose of God. So again, the plan of God, the plan for God, is for for him to make his glory known, to make himself known, to make himself known known among men so that men might praise him, that men might worship him, adore him, and love him, uh, for he is good, and that's the right thing for men to do. And we saw last time the fact that God is a loving God, and he is indeed a loving God. He, he loves men, that's true, John 3 and 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. But as I told you, the person whom he loves the most is his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So God so loved the his son, God so loved his dear son, Philippians 2, 9 says that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and those who are in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So Jesus Christ is the preeminent object of God the Father's love. Uh, he is the very center of God's love. And because that is true, God the Father had determined before the foundation of the world, before time began, that he would create for himself and call to himself an elect humanity, a saved, redeemed humanity, saved by the substitutionary sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who would therefore, in return, they would worship and serve and love the Lord Jesus Christ throughout time and for all of eternity. And last time we worked through a number of passages to work out that truth. And we're not going to go back over that, obviously, for the sake of time tonight, but if you weren't with us last time, you might want to listen to that sermon because I think you'll be greatly encouraged by the truths that are found in our study. And because as we studied last week intently, uh, we came to the, or as we studied last week intently, we came to the conclusion that when it comes to the issue of our salvation, 
Uh, we are obviously the benefactors of God's grace and kindness to us through Christ, but man is not the main issue in salvation. Uh, Christ is. As I said last time, salvation is primarily for the honor of the Son, not the honor of the, of, of the, of the sinner. Salvation is primarily for the honor of the Son, not the honor of the sinner. And so we live in a kind of an upside-down world on a theological level where we tend to be so man-centered on everything. We think everything's about us. And the reality is everything's about God and about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, we're going to see that more expressly stated as we move on to verse 29 uh, tonight. Now, the portion of uh, Scripture that we're about to enter into, just like the portion we just finished up with, is a tremendously wonderful truth. It's filled with much theological content that we need to really stop and think deeply about. So again, we can understand our salvation, we can understand properly the love of God in a greater fashion, and at the same time understand, in the context, Romans 8, the security of our salvation found in the person of Jesus Christ. So all that to say, that's kind of a long way to say we're not going to go very fast, all right? Which you're not surprised by. We're not going to go very fast. Because I, I want you to be encouraged as we work our way through the text, because it's great truth. And we want, I want you to hear God speak to you and you to understand the rich doctrinal truths concerning our salvation in Christ that are laid out here in these next few verses. And I think one thing that's going to stand out in the forefront as we continue to work our way through the passage uh, uh, is that our salvation is not at all dependent upon us, right? Our, our, our salvation is not dependent upon us and our faith, but our salvation is dependent upon God, God's purpose, God's plan. Now, that too should become a tremendous source of encouragement because if we're honest with ourselves, we understand that we're weak. And if our salvation and our perseverance in the faith depended upon us, we really would be hopelessly lost. We'd be completely defeated, completely dejected. We think of this song I'm going to tell you the lyrics to as a little child song, and it is, I guess, but it's certainly full of good theology. Jesus loves me, this I know. How do I know that? For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. You've heard that song, right? We're weak. We're weak, and that's him. He's strong. Right? The God of love who is strong. And so we should say in response to that truth, thanks be to our God that our salvation, our eternal security are not dependent upon our own efforts, but they're already settled issues because of the plan and the purposes of God surrounding the exaltation of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our salvation, our eternal security, is not dependent upon us, our own effort, our trying, but they're already settled issues because of the plan and purposes of God surrounding, again, the exaltation of his son, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we work our way through verses 29 and 30, we're going to come in contact with five great doctrinal truths. Five great doctrines emerge. Foreknowledge, predestination, effectual calling, justification, and glorification. Foreknowledge, predestination, effectual calling, justification, and glorification. And these doctrines are so closely linked that they have been called by theologians for a long time. A golden chain of five links. Right, A golden chain of five links, each forged in heaven, each link describing something that God has done, each link being a divine affirmation. And the five links are divided into two groups. The first group is foreknowledge and predestination. And foreknowledge and predestination are concerned with God's eternal counsel or the things that he determined to do before time began. The last group is justification and glorification. And that's concerning what God has done or what God is doing or what God will do with us. And they're linked together, with the, both of these groups, with the term called what connects the first pair with the second pair. And we have to understand that these terms, again, these doctrines flow from eternity past to eternity future. Uh, these, these verses that we're about to work our way into uh, give really the grand scope of God's activity, his plan of salvation from eternity to eternity. The called of God, as we looked at last time, the called of God are those whom these great promises belong to. And again, it's not enough just to attend church. It's not enough just to make a verbal profession of uh, Christianity. Those things in and of themselves do not guarantee that you're one of the called. Uh, again, we spoke of that about, we spoke about, of that in the past. Who are the called? Remember, I, uh, it was the last time or a couple times ago, I talked about this issue of the called. Who are the called? Well, the called are ones that are really um, surprised that they're concerned whatsoever about the things of God. That's the called. 
the called were living their life apart from God. They had no concern for the person of God. And then all of a sudden, God interfered in their life. God became involved in their lives, and then God called them out of the darkness, out of, out of the world, and away from their old way of doing things and their old way of thinking. And then God called men and women to himself, and he called them to himself according to his purpose. That's the call. And as a result of God's calling in a person's life, those who are truly called of God, now they love God. Now they adore God. Once, they only love themselves. At one point in life, they themselves were the central issue in their hearts and minds. They, in essence, worshipped and served themselves. That's the, that's the world of the lost. But now they've been changed. Again, they, the call, they've been changed. Something's happened to them. Something they didn't ask for, something they didn't plan for. But now they're different. And now because of the call on their life by God, instead of them being concerned about themselves, instead of themselves being the central issue in their life, God is now central in their lives. God is central in their heart, their mind, their actions. And God and Christ are always the very center of those who are truly called. The, the very center of those who truly love God. Those who are called according to his purpose and those who are truly saved. Now I point out the fact that the term the called separates the human race separates men into categories, those who are God's people and those who are not God's people, those who are saved and those who are lost, those who love God, those who hate God, those who love Christ and those who despise him. Because there's a separation among men, not all men are going to be saved. Some men will say, be saved, some men are going to perish. It's only those who believe that are going to be saved. John 3 and 16 again, For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Verse 17, for God did not send the Son of the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through him. That's God's purpose for sending Christ into the world, to save. To save the called out ones, to save God's people. Verse 18 of that chapter, John 3, verse 18 says, He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's something I think a lot of men don't understand. They think they can be indifferent to the person of God, and the reality is they can't. Those who believe are saved. Those who believe are not judged. Those who do not believe are perishing. Those who do not believe have been judged already because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. God makes distinctions among men that men need to realize. Those who do not believe, those who have rejected God's mercy through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the wrath of God abides upon them. Again, those who believe are saved. Because God in his mercy has granted to them his grace in Christ. You might remember last week we looked at 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. which says, God has saved us and called us from a, with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. God has a distinguishing, God distinguishes among men. And Christ has a, de, a definitive body of people, those who have been the recipients of his grace. John 10, verse 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, I know them, they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. Again, uh, these sheep are his. They're special to him. Special object of his love. Special objects of the Father's love. And the distinction, that little phrase, my sheep, indicates that there are other sheep that don't belong to him. Jesus said that in that uh, John chapter 10 passage, back up in verse 26 of that chapter, he said that to be true of the religious leaders of Israel. You do not believe because you're not my sheep. Right? My sheep hear my voice. Again, John chapter 17, in Christ's high, high priestly prayer, Christ prays this, John 17 verse 5, Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory with which I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they kept your word. Verse 9 of that chapter, I ask on their behalf, I do not ask on the behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. So again, here Christ in John 17 says specifically, he's not praying for everyone, 
Rather, he's got a prayer, and he's praying that prayer for those whom you have given to me. Which, again, goes to say that God makes distinctions among men. And that's all right. It's proper because that's what the Bible says to be true. Now, we live in a context, again, in a, uh, probably under the influence of pretty bad theology for a long period of time here in the church in North America, where we have almost a universalistic mentality that says that because God is a God of love, then ultimately all men are going to be saved. And again, that's not the clear teaching of the Bible. And, and we don't go to that extreme, as some people do, teaching that in error that all men are going to be saved. At least we who are conservative, we who are Bible believers. But I think there's still within us, there's a little tension there in the background, a little struggle in our minds when we're confronted with the truth that the, the God of love makes a distinction among men. The God of love who so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son. That same God, the only God, the God who loves men, makes distinctions among men here in the world. And I think for some people, that when you're first introduced to that, that's a statement that's a little bit hard to accept and to grasp, but nevertheless, it's what the Bible teaches. It's what the Bible teaches to be true about God. It's indeed true and proper and right, because again, it's what the Bible teaches. And there's nothing incongruent with that. There's nothing inconsistent with God being a God of love who has a love for the world in general, yet has a distinguishing love on his sheep, on a special people, that he loves them in a special way. And I can prove that to you. I can prove that to you because the Bible says that, but I can give you an example that you can all relate to, at least most of you. If I say that I love all women at Cornerstone Bible Church, and I do, and I can properly express my love to the women here by showing them kindness and respect and etc. However, I cannot and I do not love all women at Cornerstone Bible Church in the same manner. Right? There's a special love, a distinctive love, expressly reserved for only one woman in my life, and that's the one whom I call to be my wife. Therefore, while I can say that I have a love for the women, of course, on Bible Church, I can express that love to them in certain forms within proper bounds of conduct. But my love for the women, of course, on Bible Church makes distinctions. And only one woman receives my special love. Now, somebody might come and say, well, with that analogy, well, you know what, you chose your wife based on certain qualities that you saw in her. And that's true because, again, analogies, someplace they all break down. This where, that's where that one breaks down. But the Bible says that God loves us not based on anything in us, anything inherently lovely in us. In fact, the Bible says quite the opposite about the love of God for us. The Bible says that the love of God for us, that God loved us even while we were yet what? Sinners. The Bible says that God loved us when we were his enemies. The Bible says that God loved us when we were children of wrath, even as the rest, when we were sons of disobedience, when we were indulging our flesh and our minds, and even uh, when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, God loved us. To say that God is a God of love, therefore he must love all men without distinction in the same manner, in the same way as to make the same kind of error that says that I must love all women in the same manner that I love my wife, and that's simply not true. You could use the same analogy when it comes to your children, all of our children. I mean, I love all of our children at Cornerstone Bible Church, and we got a lot of them. And each of us who are parents, we certainly love all the children at Cornerstone Bible Church, but we love our own children in a very special and peculiar, particular manner that is different or distinct from the way we love other children in the congregation that are not our own. God makes distinctions, and so do we. God makes distinctions among men because he's God. And according to his divine purpose, he determined to do so. Now, I give you all of that by way of introduction because that's really the idea behind the word for new here in verse 29. For those whom he foreknew. The word foreknow or foreknew comes from prognostico. It means to know or to know beforehand. Now, while the word foreknew indeed has a, a meaning to know beforehand, we need to realize that that interpretation is ours based on a factor of time. Or that's how we understand that word because we are in time. God, however, is what? Eternal. He stands outside of the bounds of time, above time. So listen, God does not know beforehand. Listen, God simply knows. God simply knows. He knows all things. 
That's the issue, that's the, uh, the essence of omniscience. He knows all. Now it's understandable for us who are locked into time to see the word primarily from the standpoint of how we think in time categories to know beforehand. But God, on the other hand, because he's outside of time or over time, if God knows something or foreknows something, the reason that he foreknows something is because he's the one who has predetermined it to happen. That's exactly what I read to you last week out of Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me. Here it is. Isaiah 46, verse 10, declaring the end from the beginning. From ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. God does not simply know beforehand. God just knows. And if he at all foreknows something, it's because he has predetermined what's going to happen. The great commentator in the book of Romans, Robert Haldane, said this. He said, God foreknows what will be by determining what shall be. It's a great statement. God foreknows what will be by determining what shall be. That's the essence of sovereignty. That's the essence of sovereignty, the fact that God is in control of everything. He knows all things, always. Because he's the one who causes all things to come to pass. And when it comes to the issue of uh, salvation, many people wrongly believe that God's divine foreknowledge means that God looks down to the corridors of time to see who will believe in him and who will not believe in him. And because he knows beforehand that certain people will believe, those whom he knows will believe, those are the ones he chooses, those are the ones he saves. But look very carefully. That's not at all what verse 29 says. Look at verse 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 29 says that God foreknew people. Those, those whom he foreknew. The verse doesn't say whatsoever what people were doing or not doing, as in believing or not believing. The Bible doesn't, or or this text, this verse doesn't speak about faith of men whatsoever. Faith isn't mentioned. The entire section is about God, what God is doing. Look again. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, and these whom he predestined, he also called, and these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. It's all about God, not about men. People jump to wrong conclusions that aren't biblical because they're trying to make the Bible fit into a context of a particular belief system they ascribe to or they're trying to make the Bible and the God of the Bible fit into a system that they themselves think is logical or at least a way they think things should be, and that's error. Right? So we have to handle the Word of God accurately and properly, carefully. If divine foreknowledge meant, as some believe, that God simply looks ahead to see who would believe upon him and then he chose them based on their action, then salvation would begin with men's faith and men's action rather than God being the initiator of salvation. And that's completely contrary to what the Bible teaches on the issue of salvation, John 6 and 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. Test question, what do you think no one means in the Greek? No one's coming. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me gets involved. He draws him. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Salvation always begins with God. God's the initiator in salvation. He gives to men faith as a gift of his grace so that they might believe, and he, the Father, draws men to Christ so that they might be saved. Again, no one's going to heaven, no one's getting saved, or no one's coming to Christ on their own initiative by their own power, Because we can't. The Bible clearly teaches that all men are dead in trespasses and sin. The Bible clearly teaches that men are unable to understand anything on a spiritual level apart from God's uh, interaction. 
First uh, Corinthians uh, chapter two verse fourteen. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised or spiritually discerned. A natural man doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God. Why do people not believe the Bible? Because natural man can't. It's just a bunch of foolishness. They can't understand because they don't have the person of the Holy Spirit. Right? These things are spiritually discerned. The Bible teaches there's none righteous, no, not one. Right? There's none righteous among men. The Bible teaches, you can have all the seeker-sensitive services you want, and a lot of congregations do that, but the Bible teaches there's no one seeking after God on their own initiative. Romans 3 and 9, what then? We are, be- are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's none who does good. There's not even one. Now, if foreknowledge meant that God looked down the corridors of time, as it were, to see who would respond to the gospel on their own initiative, all God would see is nothing but what? Rebellion. Nothing but rebellion, nothing but unbelief against him. But God's foreknowledge is not a reference to his omniscient foresight, but to his plan, his foreordination. That, that's, really the way the, that's really the way the word is used in the New Testament foreknew or foreknowledge from God's perspective has the meaning of God setting his special love upon a person or persons whom he elects or whom he chooses for salvation. Foreknew from the perspective of the New Testament means God setting his special love upon a person whom he elects or chooses for salvation. God ordains it or God decrees whom he's going to save. And not only that, but the idea of to know often carries with it in a biblical meaning or biblical context. The idea of special intimacy is often used in the Bible as a a metaphor for a love relationship. So when the Bible says that Adam knew Eve, or because Adam knew Eve, uh, Adam had relationships with his his wife and uh, uh, bore a son, it obviously means that idea of knew, Adam knew Eve, obviously means there's a special intimate relationship relationship between the two it's more than just a casual knowledge by adam that eve is somewhere in the garden i mean he's he's got more of an understanding of her than that right in fact in genesis 4 verse 17 it says cain had relations with his wife and she conceived and gave birth to enoch and that phrase in uh, uh, genesis 4 17 had relationship with is the normal word the normal hebrew word for knowing yada and it's actually, listen, it's actually the same word translated chosen out of Amos 3.2 where God says to Israel, only you have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Only you have I known. So obviously God knew about the other nations, other families of the earth. He knew that they existed, but what he's saying there, it was upon Israel, the nation of Israel, that he set his special, distinctive, distinguishing, special love upon God knew Israel in the sense that he chose them to be his people. He chose them to enter into a special, intimate relationship with him. So therefore, in our text, God has foreknown a special group of people, the called. He has set his special love upon them. He knows them intimately. He knows them personally. He foreknew them because he ordained or decreed that they would be his people, and he has chosen them for salvation. And as you look at the rest of the New Testament, uh, other passages of Scripture in the New Testament, that word foreknowledge is used about five times, and it speaks again of God's foreknowledge, the issue of God foreknows, or if God foreknows something, it's because he's the one who predetermined what would happen. So put up a little mark there. We'll come back to uh, Romans 8, but look over at Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 23. Let's just look at a few of these, these places where the idea of foreknowledge comes up. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. In the context here, Peter's speaking on the day of Pentecost to the Jews in Jerusalem, telling them about the Lord Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now, the question is, is Peter simply saying that from all eternity, God knew 
that Christ would die upon the cross? And the answer to that question obviously is no. There'd be no point in him saying that. What Peter is saying is that God planned it. God planned the death of Christ upon the cross. By the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, this man, right, Jesus Christ, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now the word predetermined there is from the word herizo. We got our English word horizon. And the horizon designates the outer limits of what you can see, the boundaries uh, from a given vantage point. So the basic idea behind the Greek word is setting boundaries or setting limits. The word plan there is used to designate the officially convened decision-making council. And so both the words include the idea of willful intention. This is the plan and the purposes of God, the predetermined plan and purposes of God. Now, I'm going to get a technical with you just for a second, but you, you'll be okay. You, you, you'll survive it. Uh, foreknowledge is the noun form of the verb translated foreknew in our text. And according to Greek grammar rules, the Granville-Sharp rule, if you've studied anything with Greek, the Granville-Sharp rule says, if two nouns of the same case are connected by chi, which is the word and, and have a definite article, the, before the first noun, but not before the second noun, the two nouns refer to the same thing. So what do you mean by that? Well, look up there again. This man determined, this, this man delivered, delivered over by, here it is, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge. Two nouns, same case, connected by and, have a definite article before the first, but not before the second, so it's referring to the same thing. What does that mean? What Peter is saying is that God's predetermined, willful, intentional setting the limits of of this plan, this foreordained plan, and his foreknowledge, he planned the death of the Lord Jesus Christ upon Calvary's cross before the foundation of the world. That's what he's saying. God sent Christ into the world to that end, but he foreordained, he predetermined that all this was going to happen. Again, we've been talking about that in the morning, that Jesus Christ is no victim. It's part of the plan. The death of Christ is no accident. It's not a, not a tragedy. God foreknew it. God planned it. God purposed it. God sent him into the world to be the substitute, to be the substitute for sinners. Because, again, he is the Lamb of God who has slain before the foundation of the world. This is already worked out in the eternal plans and counsels of, of the Godhead. That's the passage there in Acts chapter 2. Go over to Romans. The next one is obviously Romans chapter 8, verse 28 or 29, but we're there. But turn over to Acts chapter, to a Romans chapter 11. Romans 11. In Romans 11, the context of chapter 9, 10, and 11 is Paul defending the doctrine of eternal security of the elect against the argument that eternal security of the elect can't be true because look at Israel. Right? There's many, many Jews have not believed in Christ. That's the context of 9, 10, and 11. Look at Romans 11, verse 2, or verse 1. And Paul addresses this issue of eternal security with a series of answers. And here in 11, he uses the word for new. Verse 1, 11, Romans 11, verse 1. I say then... God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, the descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. What does that mean? Does it mean that God does not reject those who he sees in advance will not reject him? No, that's not what he's saying. It's only one possibility. He's saying that God's never going to cast away his people whom he has known in advance, whom he has chosen, whom he has foreordained. God has not rejected his people whom he has foreknew, right? whom he has set his love upon. That, that's the argument of the entire chapter. God has not rejected the chosen, those whom he has chosen, those whom he has set his eternal love upon. Now, God has not elected each and every single individual out of the nation of Israel to be saved, but those whom he again has set his eternal electing love of salvation upon they're safe they're secure paul understood that on a personal level he was a guy who was caught up in all kinds of wrong thinking wrong error he's caught up in judaism obviously a, a pharisee a teacher in judaism and by his own admission that theological system that trapped him in or he was trapped in or he trapped himself in because of that wrong understanding of truth he was once a blasphemer 1 Timothy 1, verse 12, Paul says, I thank Jesus Christ, our Lord, who strengthened me, 
because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all, yet for this reason I was found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. God has an electing love on those who would believe upon his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. This guy was a blasphemer, but the grace of God was more than abundant in his life. And the grace of God is more than abundant in every person's life who receives what God has to say. How do you know who are the called? I don't know. All I know is that they respond by faith to what the Bible says. They're surprised by their life, that they believe the things that the Bible says, because one time they didn't believe in it. They're surprised by who they are, that God has actually transformed and changed their life. Not by anything they were seeking, not by anything they were doing, but God, in his mercy, has arrested them. He put me into service as a blasphemer, persecutor, violent aggressor. But the grace of the Lord was more abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. He was the foremost, he said. So again, here in Romans 11, Paul says, I sinned that God has not rejected his people. Has he? May it never be. For I too many Israelite are descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 2, God has not rejected his people whom he has foreknown. Again, not saying that each and every single person out of the nation of Israel is going to be saved. That's universalism. We don't believe that. But God never rejects those whom he's chosen. He never rejects those whom he has once set his special love upon them. And once he has set his special love upon them, we're not going to get to it tonight, but they're going to go all the way to where? Glory. That's what the whole Romans 8 passage that we're working our way through, right? That's, that's the destination. The next reference, uh, go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1, right there at the top. Peter's writing to a number of Christians who are scattered throughout the Roman provinces of today what we'd call Turkey because of persecution. And at the very beginning of the letter, he says this, Peter, verse 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are elect, right, those who are chosen. Why? According to, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. So why did God choose these people? Because he foresaw that they would believe Upon Christ, that's not what it says. In fact, it's the exact opposite. They believe because they were chosen of God. They were chosen of God according to his foreknowledge, according to his predetermined plan. According to his foreknowledge and according to his predetermined plan, they were chosen to be the special objects of his divine love by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. Before you came to Christ, you did not obey Christ. You come to Christ, you obey Christ. By the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, who once did not reside in you, but now resides in you if you're a believer, to obey Christ, your life has been transformed and changed and dwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit, and to be sprinkled with his blood, the blood of Christ, just means to be forgiven, saved, sealed eternally. The last reference is in the same chapter. Just drop down to verse 20, 1 Peter 1, verse 20. And again, Peter is speaking about God's determined plan to send Jesus Christ to be the Savior. Starting in verse 17. 1 Peter 1, verse 17. If you address as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourself in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, verse 19, but with the precious blood of as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ, verse 20, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, verse 21, through him are believers in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. 
So again, he's saying Jesus Christ was chosen, if I can use that phraseology. He was chosen, he was appointed, he was foreordained to be the Savior, the only Savior of the world, as we saw last time, before the world was created, before time began. Jesus Christ, God the Father, chose Jesus Christ to be the Savior before the world began, before world were, before men were created, before men even fell. God, in his eternal purpose and counsel, had chosen the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished, spotless, the blood of Christ, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world and has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Who are believers through him, right? Who are through him believers in God, raised, whom God raised from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope are in God. Not in your own effort, but in the plan and the purposes of God. Now go back to Romans chapter 28, or chapter 8, verse 29. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Verse 29 again, for those whom he foreknew. Again, he's talking about people. The people, the, the chosen one of God, the one who God set his special discriminating, distinguishing, save a lo- saving love upon. These people. These people he set a special love upon for their good and for his glory. Because, again, God makes distinctions amongst men. God not only chose and set his love upon this select group, so not only that they would be saved, but verse 29 goes on and says, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined them to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. He predestined. That means that God determined a specific destiny for this group of people that he has previously chosen. Those who God, whom God set his heart upon to love, he, he predestined their destiny. And what is their destiny? Well, it's right there in the text. Here's their destiny, that they would be conformed to the image of his son. These whom he set his eternal electing love on, and in time called them to himself, they would be like Christ. They would be predestined to become like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. One commentator says this. He says, that is perfection and righteousness. As God makes for himself a people, recreated into the likeness of his own divine son, who will dwell and reign with him in heaven throughout all eternity. God is redeeming for himself an eternally holy and Christ-like race to be citizens of the divine kingdom and children of the divine family. Isn't that good? God has called himself an elect people who are going to be conformed to the image of his son or in the process of being conformed in time eternally will be just like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, trying to back up and not be so man-centered in our thinking, uh, uh, salvation is much more than just us having our sins forgiven. Salvation is being declared just and in God's sight because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. And salvation is going to lead everyone who is chosen of God or called of God to be conformed to the image of his son, to become in the, in the same form, that word conformed, same form, same nature, same likeness, so that he'd be the firstborn among many brethren. I mean, again, when you come from a biblical perspective and start thinking about this from a God side that we should be thinking of, you see just how profound salvation is. Not only are we going to be saved from the eternal wrath to come, one day we're going to be like Christ. But the ultimate purpose of salvation is the glory of Christ, the preeminence of Christ, of the glory of the Son, the glory of the Savior. Again, not the glory of the sinner. So again, why has God determined before the foundation of the world to set his special love upon a group of people who are sinners by birth, sinners by practice, sinners by divine declaration? Why has God foreknown them and decreed that they would be saved in time and be the special object of his mercy and love? Because we're so lovable? No. God said to the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy 7, 7, The Lord did not set his love on you or choose you because you were more number than all the peoples, for you were fewest of all the peoples. Why did God set his love on you? Verse 8, Deuteronomy 7, verse 8, because the Lord loves you. Why does God love the nation of Israel? Because God loves the nation of Israel. Why does God love us? Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 says, God who is rich in mercy, 
because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, and made us alive together with, by, with, together with Christ, and by grace you've been saved. Why does God love us? Because that's the nature of God. God determined to love us. He, he determined to love us so that he could draw all men's attention to the Savior, to the Lord Jesus Christ, because the Lord Jesus Christ is the issue in the room, not the, not the sinner. The glory of the Son the glory of the Savior, not the glory of the sinner. So God ordains that he would have a certain people that he would draw to himself, draw their attention to the person of Christ because Christ deserves to be exalted because Christ must be and Christ will be presented to all in all of his glory. He will be exalted among the nations. Did I not read that this morning? Why are the nations in an uproar? I've set my king upon Zion. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he, Christ, would be the prototokos, the firstborn, the preeminent one. It's not chronological, it's importance. Prototokos, the, the most important one. He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Again, the issue here is the glory of Christ. Because the glory of Christ is the ultimate end and object of salvation. But in order to get there, God carried out his eternal purposes. He comes, he marks us out in time. He loves us, he cares for us. That we might be saved, that we might be transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, that we might come from death to life, that we might come from being aliens and strangers, that we might come into his family, and that we might be made like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He wants us to look like him. And again, when you start understanding those truths from a biblical standpoint, you see really how wonderful salvation is. And you see the ultimate object in salvation is not the salvation of the sinner against the glory of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now you have a little bit of an understanding of why our eternal security in the context of Romans 8 is so certain. Why our eternal security is so certain. One commentator says this, For a believer to lose his salvation would be for God to fail in his divine purpose and to condemn to hell those whom he had sovereignly elected to redemption. It would be for God who cannot lie to break his covenant with himself made before the foundation of the earth. It would mean that the divine seal of the Holy Spirit imprinted on the king or imprinted by the king of kings and lord of lords upon each of his elect children would be subject to violation and abrogation. Leading up to the climactic truth that without exception God will complete the salvation of every sinner who is converted to Christ. Because Paul has already established that there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You probably know people like this. And I genuinely feel bad for them. Those dear brothers and sisters in Christ who live daily in fear of losing their salvation. And the reason that they live daily in fear of losing their salvation is they don't understand the truth. They don't understand the truth. They don't understand God's eternal plan of redemption. They don't understand the exaltation of the, of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, again, in the context of Romans 8, how do, how do we live in the life of the uh, world that's fallen? How do we stand up the trials and tribulations of life? How is it that we can face the sufferings of this present time, which are real? And how can Paul come to the table and say, but they're not worthy of being compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us? Because he understands the truth. And we have to understand the truth. We have to believe the truth, accept the truth, live by the truth, act upon the truth. And I've said this often from the pulpit, one of the problems with all of us in the room is we tend to be too subjective. We start with us. And we're the center of the universe. We're the center of our universe. We start with us, we end with us. Therefore, it's very difficult for us to look up, to see the reality and the truth of God, and then live life in light of revealed truth. But that's what we have to do, because that's what we're called to do. I say it often from the pulpit, too. We're to stop listening to ourselves and start to speak to ourselves the truth. The problems we have in life in a fallen world, they're real, but so is our destiny. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. We are going to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ will be preeminent, listen, among many brethren. Not just a few, but many. 
It's a tremendous portion of Scripture. Then obviously we don't have enough time to get through all of it tonight, so we're going to have to pick it up, Lord willing, next time. But just think of it, right? Can you think of anything more comforting to know, the truth, more comforting truth to know that if you love God, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to come conform to the image of his son, so they might be the firstborn among many brethren. If you love God, you're part of the called. And if you're called, you're part of the eternal purposes and plans of God that he set forth before the foundation of the world. And he chose to set his special discriminating love upon you, again, before the foundation of the world. Before time began, he determined that you will be, not maybe, or maybe if something happens or something else doesn't happen. No, he determined that you will be, without exception, eternally secure. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. And again, if you go on, it says in verse 30 of the chapter, it says, those whom he predestined, he called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also what? Glorified. The world has absolutely no idea where they're going. That's why they run around like crazy people. Because they are crazy. Because they have not bowed the knee to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's the only one who should be bowed before. You know exactly where you're going. You're not getting there by your own effort, by your own trial, by your own trying. You're getting there by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. The fact that he set his eternal love upon you and he's promised to conform you in time to the image of his son. That's good news. That's good news. Well, let's pray. What a Savior, our Father in heaven. We just love you, and we're so thankful for that wonderful truth that you have just shown us in just this little portion of verse 29. Thank you so much. What else is this for us to say? To thank you for your compassion. Thank you for your goodness. It's beyond comprehension. But nevertheless, it's there in the text of the Scripture. Therefore, it's true, and we need to live our life in according to the truth, not according to how we feel about things, but according to what your word says. Help us to do that. Help us just to rejoice even more each and every day, knowing that while the world is in chaos, your people aren't, because we're part of your plan, eternally safe, eternally secure, caught up in the eternal love of the triune God, caught up in a plan that is not primarily about the salvation of the sinner, but the exaltation exaltation of the Savior, of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are the beneficiaries of this great eternal plan that you have called us to be a part of. Therefore, we humbly bow before you and tell you of our love and thank you for the salvation that we have in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would walk accordingly to that truth. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.